you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. One of the, one of the great scholars and pastors of the 20th century in the early part of the 21st century was Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who for many, many years was pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in one of his commentaries, Dr. Boyce wrote these words. In the 16th and 17th verses of Romans chapter 1, we come to sentences that are the most important in the letter, and perhaps in all of literature. I agree with that assessment. These verses are the theme of the epistle. And not only that, they are the essence of Christianity. They are the heart of biblical religion. They tell us that Jesus loves me. And I know that because the Bible says it. The reason they are so important is that they tell us how a person can be right with God. And we are not right with God in ourselves. That is what the doctrine of original sin is all about. We are in rebellion against God. And if we are in rebellion with God, we cannot be right with Him. On the contrary, we are to be judged by Him. What is more, we are polluted by our sin, completely. We are as filthy in God's sight as the most diseased, infected, loathsome individual could be in ours. And in that state, we must be banished from God forever when we die. So what is to be done? How can that be fixed? On our side, nothing can be done. And yet, in these verses, Paul tells us that God has done something. In fact, he has done precisely what needs to be done. He has provided a righteousness that is exactly what we need. It is a divine righteousness, a perfect righteousness. And it is received not by doing righteous things, which, by the way, you could never do enough of in sufficient quantity to please God anyway. But this righteousness is received by simple faith. It is received by believing what God tells us. In this message, I want to concentrate on the chief idea in these two verses, namely that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed and that this righteousness is received and has always been received by faith. And the place to begin is with the truth that we do not naturally possess this righteousness. Uh, I don't think there can be much objection to that statement that we do not possess true righteousness because that is the point with which Paul begins his formal argument. That is, immediately after having stated the thesis of the book of Romans in chapters 16 and 17, or verses 16 and 17, he immediately launches into a section that will go from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 20 of chapter 3, which he shows that far from being righteous before God, all people 
are actually completely depraved and utterly and totally corrupt and are therefore naturally objects of God's wrath and condemnation. Uh, Notice in verse 17, our text here, that Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, if you want to flip a couple of pages in your Bible to chapter 3, verse 21, he says virtually the same thing once again. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The words has been manifested mean is revealed. And the reference to the law and the prophets corresponds to Paul's citation here in verse 16 and 17 of the prophet Habakkuk who had written the righteous shall live by faith. So the full exposition of what Paul introduces in verse 17 here really only begins at chapter 3 verse 21. And we have this parentheses from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20. And the intervening verses demonstrate clearly the need for righteousness. And he introduces that with a with parallel uh, with that is a deliberate contrast to these two statements here. At the start of the section, at the start of verse 18, rather than talking about the righteousness of God that he says is revealed in the gospel, he says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what Paul says from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20 encompasses all of humanity. But he develops his thoughts progressively. He moves from a description of those who are openly hostile to God and wicked to those who consider themselves to be moral and consider themselves to be acceptable to God the way they are on the basis either of their good works or of their religion. And they should be acceptable to God because of those works and because of that religion. But there's one thing that Paul teaches here that is true of everyone. And that is, left to ourselves, we either will use our heathen lifestyle, our claims to moral superiority, or our religion to resist the one true God. Paul is going to say in these verses in chapter, in verse 18 through 320, that certain facts about God have been revealed in nature to all people. His divine power, his invisible attributes. He says that anyone can look at the creation and discern that there is a God and that he has all power. But what human beings do, instead of allowing that revelation to point them to God and attempt to seek him out as a result of what they see, they actually suppress 
the revelation that God has given in nature so that they can continue in their own sin. And that's the real ground, by the way, of God's just wrath against us. Sometimes people say, well, uh, you know, God's not fair because he judges men because they failed to do something uh, or they refused to believe something they didn't even know about. No, no, no. God's just wrath comes against the human race because they reject the knowledge of God that can be known by anyone by looking at the creation. And what Paul will say is they reject the creator and they worship creatures. They make idols for themselves rather than worshiping the one true God who is clearly revealed in the creation. And they reject the knowledge of God that they see in order to pursue their own wickedness. They like their sin. People love sin. That's why they do it, you see. Even as believers, the reason that we fail to be obedient is because we like our sin. And when we like sin more than we like pleasing Christ, we fail. So, when we get to the end of the section, uh, Paul quotes from a number of Old Testament texts, but in chapter 3, verse 10 through 18, he says this, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A great 19th century believer once said that until a man comes to faith in Christ, all of his good works are nothing more than glorious sins. That's it. All of your good works apart from Christ are just glorious sins. The psalmist said, the plowing of the wicked is sin. Plowing? How can plowing be sin? Because they do not believe God. Because they are not trusting Him. So it is sin. So then after outlining the need for this righteousness, we need to see the nature of this righteousness. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through 320 gives the most accurate portrait of the human race that has ever been given. And yet it is against that backdrop that the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes all the more glorious. For we see a righteousness of God that is made known. I want you to notice several things about this righteousness. Number one, this righteousness that comes from God is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But it is surely like to add in view of what Paul said in the opening, opening section of the letter and he says elsewhere 
that this is the very righteousness of God that he gives to us. Righteousness is revealed in the gospel, and the gospel concerns the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is Christ who has this righteousness, and it is from him that we both learn about it, and it is from him that we receive it. Jesus Christ possesses righteousness in two ways. One, he is intrinsically righteous. He is God. Therefore, he is completely holy. He could say during the days of his incarnation, I always do what pleases God. Can you imagine anyone making that statement today? Would you make that statement? Even though you are a believer, you could not make that statement. And on another occasion, he said, speaking to very religious people, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I would never ask that question at all. It wouldn't take five seconds for someone to prove me guilty of sin. His words left them speechless because he was without sin. But Jesus is also righteous in another way. And that is that he achieved perfect righteousness by obeying the law of God while on earth. When John the Baptist uh, resisted Jesus' call for baptism, he said this, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And Jesus replied, let it be now so. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. By saying that, Jesus indicated that he would meet the demands of God's holy law in every respect while he lived among men. And he did. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He never even had a thought that was contrary to the will of God. He obeyed God's law perfectly and completely. And when Paul says that a righteousness of or from God is revealed in the gospel, he means that the gospel shows us that we can acquire that righteousness that we need. Sometimes people say to me, why are you so narrow-minded? Don't you believe there's other ways to heaven? You're sure. Just find somebody who happens to be God and man, who is born of a virgin, and then who lives a perfect life. Find somebody like that? Yeah. Then there's another way to heaven. Until you do, there's only one way. There's only one way, and that is by Jesus Christ. So this righteousness is revealed to us in the person of Christ. God requires a perfect righteousness for anyone to go to heaven. You can't go to heaven without it. I can't go to heaven without it. So God offers this righteousness of Jesus Christ freely, apart from any need for us to work for it on our part. That's the good news. Unless God were willing to give this righteousness to us, and actually does give it, then the, the existence of a perfect righteousness is not good news at all. It's bad news because we're all condemned for someone kept the law perfectly. On the contrary, that would be very bad news. It was the discovery of this truth that launched the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther 
was not a wicked man, as we normally think of wicked men. He was a monk. And yet Martin Luther saw that God required a perfect righteousness to be right with him. And the harder that Luther tried to keep God's righteousness, the more frustrated he became. Really, Luther said that his problem was he hated God. He hated God because God had set a standard that he could not live up to. No matter how hard he tried, no matter what he did, he still had thoughts that were sinful. He still got angry on occasion. He got impatient on occasion. And so Luther desperately wanted to please God, but the harder he tried to please God, the more that he knew he was not pleasing him. Uh, but then he, then he came to the realization that he had misunderstood God's intention in revealing the nature and the existence of this righteousness. It was not revealed so that men might, like Luther might strive toward it and fail desperately. It was revealed as God's free gift in Christ so that men might quit striving to achieve righteousness and rest in the perfect righteousness of Christ. What did Jesus say? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus Christ gives as a gift the righteousness of God to those who believe this gospel. It's a gift. It's a free gift. And you understand that is a redundancy, don't you? A free gift. If it's free, it's a gift. If a gift is not free, it's not a gift. You know, if someone comes to you and says, oh, here, I'm going to give you this glass. Would you now give me $10? Well, that ain't free. Wait a minute here. The gospel comes as a gift, completely free. We rest in the atoning work of Christ. We do not strive for righteousness. We are declared righteousness, righteous, because God gives it to us. The term for the application of the righteousness of Christ to believers is imputation. God imputes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to those who believe. It's like putting the infinite moral capital of the Lord Jesus Christ into our empty bank account. God declares us to be righteous when we believe, and he imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. When you go and stand before God, you will stand before the infinitely holy God clothed in a perfect righteousness. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. One day, believers will stand before the throne of God faultless, dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. When Luther saw that, he said it was as if the gates of paradise 
were open to him. He understood why the gospel was such good news. Because this perfect righteousness would be imputed to him by faith. Faith is the channel by which we receive God's righteousness. I think sometimes that Paul anticipated the battles that would come in the 16th century over the matter of the role of faith and salvation. Because he makes it clear, he says in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Another translation puts it this way. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. In, in chapter 3 verse 21 through 31, Paul refers to faith eight times. So that naturally raises the question, what is faith? Luther, before his conversion, thought of faith as a work and grimly regarded it as something to be attained. But faith is not a work, it is believing God. It is opening the hand to receive the righteousness of Christ. We're going to talk a lot more about this in the days to come, God willing. But faith involves three elements. First of all, it consists of knowledge. It's no mere attitude of mind. It involves content. We must have faith in something. In the case of salvation, that content and the object of our knowledge is the revelation of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. People who think that you can have faith without knowing anything don't know anything. Faith must involve knowledge. You can't believe what you don't know. Secondly, it consists of a heart response to the gospel. Faith is not just assent to some vague theological principle that's true but has no real relationship to us. It involves the love of God for us in saving us through the death of Jesus Christ. Unless this touches our hearts and moves them, we don't really understand the gospel. And then it consists of commitment to Christ. Jesus must become our Savior, not simply the Savior, or not even the Savior of the world, but our Savior. We respond to him. Like Thomas, we confess, my Lord and my God. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, has a little book called All of Grace. And in it, he says, faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith begins with facts that are sure. It is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny on the truth of the revelation. Faith is the eye which looks. Faith is the hand which grasps. Faith is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. When Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, he's bringing to the surface a series of underlining attacks that he had experienced in his ministry. A lot of people thought that Paul should be ashamed 
of the message of the gospel. That's because the gospel of Jesus Christ was foolishness to Greeks, it was a stumbling block to Jews, and it was utter madness to the Romans. And all of those statements are mentioned in the book of Acts in 1 Corinthians. A crucified Messiah. God will accept the Gentiles without their submission to the law of Moses. Resurrection from the dead. A greater power than that of Rome and of Rome's gods. How many times did synagogue leaders in Antioch, Roman officials in Ephesus, our philosophers in Athens say to Paul, Paul, you really don't believe that nonsense, do you? You could make a case today, according to the canons of contemporary Western belief, that as Christians we should be deeply ashamed of the gospel. Christians believe there is one triune God, not many, many gods, not an impersonal consciousness at the heart of the universe. Christians believe that the single most important event in the history of the world is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that his death was atonement for human evil, not merely an example of human suffering. We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, and resurrection is no empty metaphor for God's continuing cause. We believe that God has placed a human being, the exalted Christ, at the helm of the universe. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that there are not many ways to God, there's only one. We believe the gift of the Holy Spirit is a real experience, not the name that we give to our religious consciousness. We believe that the church is a gathering of saints who will serve God, not some religious society with backward primitive morals. We believe that when Jesus Christ comes again, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every Hindu, every Buddhist, every Muslim, every Jew, everyone on the face of the earth will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe that there is a final judgment coming and that following that judgment there will be everlasting life or everlasting destruction for every man and woman on earth who has ever lived. These beliefs are grievously offensive to inner city Greeks and to the barbarians out in the burbs. These beliefs are shameful because they seem entirely unjustified, morally offensive, and needlessly exclusive. How dare Christians believe that their God is the only God? How dare Christians say that a hookup culture demeans our sexuality? How dare Christians restrict marriage to heterosexual couples? How dare Christians violate the sacred reproductive rights of women? How dare these ignorant hicks to continue to worship some backwood rabbi from Palestine when they could worship the state or they could worship Mother Earth? 
how dare Christians keep on being Christian? In the face of accusations such as these, we can do one of two things. We can either become ashamed of the gospel or we can embrace the shame of the cross. Those are the only two options. If we become ashamed of the gospel, we must capitulate to the surrounding culture and try to make our faith more palatable by reconfiguring it so that people will accept it. That's what old liberal theology did for years. Frederick Schleimacher, the first great liberal in Germany, said that he was going to make Christianity acceptable to the masses. Rudolf Bultmann would demythologize the New Testament, take out all of the miracles. Thomas Jefferson did much the same thing. Get away, do away with that which is offensive. Things like resurrection and atonement, all of those things. Uh, that is what postmodern theologians do today and much of the church growth movement. Cherry pick your theology and only believe that which is acceptable, which is relevant, that, that which is tolerant and shows diversity. If you want to be an orthodox evangelical believer, that's not an option that I'm willing to entertain anyway. Because you end up with a domesticated God who looks a lot like the God pretenders of the modern culture. You end up with a Christianity that looks like a cross between Marcion, an early heretic of the church, and Dr. Phil. You have a bunch of self-assuring banner dressed up in some religious grammar that's designed to affirm what everyone already thinks. People become ashamed of the gospel when they value the opinion of other men more than they value the opinion of God. But I can understand that in a way. I mean, why stand up and get ridiculed for Jesus when metaphorically you can kneel before a hundred foot tall golden statue of Oprah with a rainbow sash across her and that'll get you accepted in the public square. The only problem is that's just not an option for faithful believers. So you can either be ashamed of the gospel or you can embrace the shame of the cross. And that's exactly what the Bible says we are to do. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. The alternative is this. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and the holy angels. So Jesus gives you the choice. Be ashamed of the gospel, capitulate to the world, or embrace the shame of the cross. Paradoxically, embracing the shame of the cross will take you to glory. Being ashamed of Jesus Christ means eternal damnation and condemnation. And that is the choice that is set before all men, one or the other. Just a moment, we're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to stand and sing a hymn.